0: Welcome to The Forum, live-streamed worldwide from the Leadership Studio at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I'm Dean Michelle Williams. The Forum is a collaboration between the Harvard Chan School and independent news media. Each program features a panel of experts addressing some of today's most pressing public health issues. The forum is one way the school advances the frontiers of public health and makes scientific insights accessible to policymakers and the public. I hope you find this program engaging
1: and informative. Thank you for joining us.
2: Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, This is going to be an extraordinary uh, discussion, and uh, one that is uh, timely, to say the least. My name is Philip Martin. I'm a senior investigative reporter with WGBH uh, in Boston, and also contribute to the world, PRI's The World. And I'm today's moderator. Our panelists, starting uh, from my immediate right here, are Oren Siegel. He's the director of the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism. We also have David Williams, my friend David Williams, who have been on the panel with, uh, who's been on the panel with me, or I've been on the panel with him several times. <laughs> He's the chair of the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the Harvard Chan School here. Uh, we have uh, uh, Dip Payan Ghosh, who is a uh, fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School uh, and an expert on, on uh, social media. We'll be talking about that. Maureen Costello, all the way in from uh, uh, Montgomery and Birmingham, Alabama, director of Teaching Tolerance and member of the Southern Poverty Law Center's senior leadership team. And by Fred joining us remotely, again, Jim Doyle, former senior Menshell fellow and former governor and attorney general of Wisconsin, a state that's really in the news these days, isn't it? Uh, this event is being presented jointly with PRI's uh, The World and WGBH. And we're streaming live, uh, just want everyone to, Get to your Facebook and uh, and uh, your social media because we're streaming live on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, this program will include uh, brief questions and answers, and you folks can you can email questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. I'm going to repeat that again: the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. And you can also participate in a live chat that's happening on the forum site at this very moment. We've seen it. You've, uh, all you have to do is turn on your television, uh, turn on your radio. You've heard people and seen people marching in Virginia shouting, "We, the Jews will not replace us. We've seen a synagogue where a massacre took place. We saw a supermarket, people going out shopping and uh, shot to death because of the color of their skin. Acts of hate and racism, whether online or in in person, are painfully visible these days. Uh, Statistics from the FBI, as well as from organizations, such as the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League, confirm that hate crimes are on the rise. Such acts are, of course, not only in the United States. We see this in Europe and other places globally. Just take a look at the streets of Poland, or look at Hungary, or uh, the Philippines, or Brazil, and you see that uh, the what they have in common besides the populism, uh, that is the term of choice, is a lot of hate. Um, and today, during Black History Month, we pause, we take a moment, to ask what forces are fueling the rise of hate and racism. What's contributing to what we're seeing out here, and what what can we do about it that's the operative question Uh, to give us a snapshot of one disconcerting facet of extremism let's take it just take a look at a clip from the anti-defamation league Uh, this clip illustrates the explosive growth of white supremacist propaganda on college campuses to turn to Oren right now. Oren, your organization's been tracking, uh, looking at the data for years. What exactly is going on? I've seen uh, posters, for example, at local colleges in Boston of basically where folks have essentially been recruiting. Can you talk about how uh, what the data shows and how you've been tracking these organizations?
3: Sure. So at ADL, we're tracking both uh, extremist-related data, but also uh, hate incidents and hate crimes of of all types. And I think the discussion today about what is driving uh, hate and racism and what we can do about it really needs to start. with the data. So what I'd like to do is just provide some of that. Um, FBI hate crime statistics recently came out for 2017, which demonstrated a 17% increase in hate crimes around the country. Um, That was over 7,000 incidents that were reported. Now, one of the key pieces of data that I think was not necessarily underscored but is as critical is that in over 90 cities with people that have over 100,000 in population, either reported zero hate crimes or didn't report hate crimes at all. So even that number we know is much lower. Uh, At ADL, we also track anti-Semitic incidents, not just crimes, but other forms of harassment and intimidation. Um, And in 2017, we saw a 57 percent increase in those anti-Semitic incidents from the previous year. And that included an over 90 percent increase in just K through 12 schools. Right, Our kids are watching the public discussion. They are viewing how uh, the headlines on the news and in your newspapers and on your social media feed are constantly filled with hate and extremism. And the last point about this to the video that we just saw, we've actually seen a 500% increase in white supremacist propaganda on the ground. Not just college campuses where we saw a spike and we continue to see that increase, but what that means is sort of this post-Charlottesville uh, environment that we're in. White supremacists may not be as comfortable you know, showing their faces at a rally, but what they're doing are finding other clandestine ways to amplify and spread their messages through propaganda spread out, not only in small towns, but literally in every major city that we see. And last point, we also track extremist-related murders at ADL, and we've been doing so since about 1970. 2018 was the fourth deadliest year related to extremist-related murders. We saw over 50 people killed by extremists, and 98% of those were by right-wing extremists, white supremacists, anti-government types. And when you look at the past 10 years, of all the extremist-related murders, about 427, 73% have been carried out by white supremacists and other homegrown anti-government-type extremists. That may not necessarily connect with some of the narratives we hear in the news every day. But these are the statistics we need to account for as we have this this discussion about whether hate is rising or not.
2: I'd like to see how those statistics also connect with uh, David Harris's uh, research. David, your work is evidence-based, uh, as uh, you've described it. You've studied how discrimination, including racist language and um, attitudes on prejudice, uh, the effects of health of those who are in the crosshairs, you've talked about that impact. Uh, tell us more about what you and your what your colleagues have found.
0: Well, there's a large body of research, and it's a global body of research that indicates that exposure to discrimination, both um, kind of virulent forms, but even little indignities on a day-to-day basis, has pervasive adverse negative effects on health. There's studies showing an increase. And, and the risk of premature death linked to exposure to discrimination. What the research is also showing us that that, we, that is very relevant for our conversation, that it's not just the incidents that are targeted at you individually, but if you live in a community with higher levels of prejudice, studies show African-Americans who live in such communities across the United States, such counties across the United States, have higher rates of death. It's not just African-Americans. There's a study looking at anti-gay prejudice in the United States. And, and for LGBT populations who live in communities of higher anti-gay prejudice, their death rates are three times higher than those who live in communities of, of, of low levels of, of anti-gay prejudice. And, and this is pervasive throughout society. One of the studies I was involved with documented that among high school and middle school students who are exposed to racial discrimination in online contexts, their levels of anxiety, their levels of depression are higher even after you take into account other adolescent stressors and discrimination offline. So documenting that discrimination online is a unique contributor to their poor health. There's research documenting the negative effects of anti-immigrant rhetoric, but also anti-immigrant policies. So for example, a study I was involved with in the state of Arizona after SB 1070 was passed, a law that authorized local officials to stop anyone who looked as if they might be illegal. And we documented among Mexican-American mothers, there was a decrease in their use of preventive health services for their children and their access of social services. And most strikingly in that study, that effect was strongest among US-born Mexican-American women. So those women who were citizens of the United States, we suspect, were so, it it was such an assault to their dignity that they could be stopped simply because of how they looked, that there were these negative effects. And and there's there's research documenting that a study out of Los Angeles that shows 11th graders who um, in the year before the election, we're concerned about the hate and the discrimination in the society. A year later, they have higher levels of depression, higher levels of anxiety, higher levels of substance abuse. So we, the bottom line is we are finding pervasive negative effects on the health of multiple stigmatized populations linked to the exposure, not only the personal targeting, but this broader context of hostility in our environment.
2: One thing is uh, this conversation is such that no, we don't have to struggle to connect the dots uh, between your different expertise, Dipayan. uh, Something David just talked about the um, uh, the role of online media, the role of uh, social media in promulgating uh, hate is fairly clear right now. But you've done research on this topic. What what have been your findings?
4: Well, I think uh, I think. Both Oren's and, and David's comments uh, and yours really resonate for me. Uh, when we when we think about some of the memes that are that are that have risen uh, over the past few years, or even particular instances of hate, so for example, the, the frog meme, or um, or instances of hate against uh, against particular classes of the U.S. population, um, really really pushed by other other groups. Um the 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 thing that we really have to think about is is why is this happening? What is the infrastructure that is enabling uh, the spread and the pervasiveness, as, as David has, has suggested of uh, of all of this content being consumed? Why is it having such an impact uh, on on the internet? And what I'd suggest uh, is that it is about the infrastructure. It is about, the commercial regime that that sits behind these internet platforms from YouTube to Facebook to Twitter to even some of the more, some some of the newer platforms and when we think about that infrastructure uh, it is, it's sometimes difficult to get our heads around how it works and what connects them all and how they're all similar but deep down I think that infrastructure that that commercial regime that defines these platforms is Actually, fairly simple at a high level. Uh, first of all, these platforms are—they uh, develop very compelling services, um, like Messenger or like the news feed or like the Twitter feed or like the YouTube system. Um, to such an extent that they're, as some psychologists have suggested, addictive, and this has prevented other services from actually challenging these services uh, to the extent that they're limiting competition on the internet. Second, uh, through these services that are dominating the internet, uh, these companies are drawing up, hoovering up, uh, large amounts of data of our personal information through our engagement on the newsfeed, uh, as well as through, uh, through purchases of data from third parties, uh, as well as from third party websites to develop behavioral profiles on us. And those first two pillars move to the move us to the third, which is that these companies develop uh, very precise and uh, sophisticated algorithms that do two things, uh, curate content in our social feeds, and target ads at us based on our behavioral profile and based on our extensive use of these platforms. And so what I'd suggest is that uh, this infrastructure has grown up in this way for, for 20 years uh, as we've seen Facebook and Google come to the fore uh, in, in the global economy, um, and, and really taken over the internet commercially, um, to the extent that uh, these, these impacts against hate are, are not really, uh, not these companies are not really challenged from a business perspective to do anything about it, until and unless the public sentiment rises up so much that they have to actually start to address it. Um, what I'd suggest is that we draw on the tremendous public sentiment against hate, against the spread of disinformation, against the spread of algorithmic discrimination, and take this opportunity in the next couple of years to push a push a regime, a regulatory regime that addresses the, the harms of that business model, so that we have better competition on the Internet, so that we have better privacy, so that we... Uh, we can have better transparency into the ways that these algorithms work. And what I'd suggest is that that can start to address, in the long run, this spread of hate uh, issue, which is uh, really, really challenging us in in really difficult ways.
2: Um, The content, um, online content that um, you, Oren, uh, David Williams uh, have talked about, This stuff, of course, is being consumed by everyone. It's across the board. Uh, It's, uh, uh, but it's mainly being consumed by young people. When you talk about online platforms, Uh, and we talk about teaching tolerance, uh, both the name of the organization uh, and an objective of of the organization. Uh, What are you finding in terms of uh, marine? In terms of Young people, the reception, and what are you finding in the schools? How are the schools being shaped by all of this?
1: What we're finding is that schools are not immune to the climate that is, you know, pervasive in the United States. Uh, Teaching tolerance has always operated to reduce prejudice in schools and to improve intergroup relations among students. But we've and we've always heard about hate incidents. Starting in 2016, we became aware that there were more incidents happening as a result of the rhetoric of the presidential campaign, and we surveyed teachers. and As a result, we came out with two reports in 2016 that showed um, three three alarming uh, phenomena. The first, of course, was that teachers were reporting that marginalized students, whether they be immigrants, LGBT students, uh, students of color generally, uh, religious minorities, were feeling high levels of anxiety. And that has been supported by subsequent studies, one out of UCLA last year, um, that have just said this has continued. The second finding was that. Bullying, which has been a long-standing concern of educators, had taken on a kind of political tint, and that we might consider it that it had been wepo- that politics had weaponized bullying in a way, and that the um, the kind of rhetoric that was being mentioned in political campaigns was now being used against vulnerable students. And the third thing we found was that teachers were really, really uncertain about how to handle this. Not only about how to support uh, marginalized children, how to kind of contain the hate that they were seeing emerging, and finally, even how to talk about politics and the election in a way that would itself not seem partisan. We've been tracking hate incidents at schools, and by hate incidents at schools, we're not talking about hate crimes necessarily. We're talking about harassment, disparaging remarks, um, negative behaviors that target a group of people based on their identity. Um, It's very hard to say whether they have increased because no one really was tracking this very closely prior to, to the last couple of years, but what we've seen is a regular number of incidents. And as the FBI uh, hate crime data showed, 25% of the hate crimes happened in schools, from K through college. We're about to release a report next month in which we've looked at both news reports of hate incidents and also uh, data gathered from educators. And what we can tell you is that anti-Semitism is on the rise. Racial harassment is on the rise. Anti-immigrant, anti-LGBT, anti-Muslim harassment are all happening at schools with a terribly detrimental effect on students, most of whom, over 51%, are children of color, and they come from these marginalized groups. So obviously, this is not only a public health crisis of sorts, but also a problem about making schools effective and doing what they're supposed to do, which is educate. You cannot educate when children don't feel safe. Uh, I would just lead, lead, lead by saying that what we've also discovered, and this will be in our report, is that the vast majority of incidents at schools never get reported in the news media. That probably fewer than 5% are reported. Um, and that for many, many children, they're being exposed to hateful language and to Disparaging remarks in a hostile environment in the very place where they should feel safest.
2: The last in the last two years, as far, probably especially, you've seen a lot of these, a lot of kids being emboldened mm-hmm. of chants uh, of all types of things that uh, perhaps you hadn't seen before. I don't think we could divorce a lot of this from the political atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And to that uh, end, I'd like to turn to uh, to Jim. Uh, who is, we're talking to remotely. He's out in Wisconsin. Uh, Jim, as former attorney general, as a former governor, mm-hmm. what role uh, are you seeing in terms of the, uh, the law, but more importantly, politics, in promulgating and then propagating hate?
5: Well, first on the law, let me say, I, I argued before the United States Supreme Court the, the, in, the, in the 1990s the, the first case that went to them on hate crimes in which they upheld the uh, right of a state, the ability of a state to impose harsher sanctions on people that commit crimes motivated by racial, uh, gender, other kinds of biases. And it was a big win at the time. But I think we all have to recognize that the law, and it's and it's critical, I should say, that those laws be enforced and people understand that the law is on one side of this issue, it's not on the other side. That the law is on the side uh, that people ought to be able to live freely in this country and they ought to live freely in a way that they are not harassed, uh, uh, harmed because of their race, their religion, their sexual orientation, whatever. Um, so that, that, but we ought to recognize that the law is, a, uh, for the issues that have been talked about, the, the demeaning statements in schools, the, the, the low-level, street-level in, uh, interaction between a police officer and somebody on the street that can be so demeaning, that have the kind of harms that uh, uh, Professor Williams has uh, documented, that the law is a pretty ham-fisted way to deal with those. It doesn't really get to those kinds of very significant issues. That's where politics becomes so important, and where leadership becomes so important. Much of this, and I'd be interested to see, while it's accelerated, I, if I recall the statistics from the uh, uh, Anti-Defamation Southern uh, Poverty Law Institute and others, it really started with the election of Barack Obama and this uh, this virulent reaction by segments of our society. The idea that an African American person could be president of the United States, birthers and all of that sort of racist stuff that that came out of it. And now it's obviously been accelerated. by political leadership that talks in stereotypes, and that's what's so harmful, these horrible stereotypes that that brown people coming across the borders are criminals, that uh, African-American people, that the, the the stereotypes they've dealt with in my world of of law enforcement that's been so harmful is there's somehow some kind of inherent criminality that we all have to be very scared about that is existing there. Those kinds of large stereotypes that come from political leadership from our president, let's just say it, I mean, when you have a president that talks in terms of people in these kinds of groups instead of Americans as American citizens, as immigrants, as, as individual people, with hopes and dreams some most good some bad you know when we have some who lump who sees the world in these kind and talks about it in that way and then you have the obvious the, equi- the when, politi- when politicians start drawing equivalencies that what happened in Virginia was sort of equal on both sides that has a that has a horrible effect on our political atmosphere but what concerns me is what professor williams is talking about is the effect on people that hear that coming at them—a an African American student working hard in school, trying to get ahead—who hears leadership talking about uh, the people of African American background with that kind of um, with that kind of dismissive attitude—it has terrible, harmful effects. And it does in the law as well, because these attitudes do then pervade the policing on our streets and lead to some of the terrible incidents we've seen. But even more, the lower level, I shouldn't say more, but equally important, that lower level, that kind of routine stop on the street in which a young black person is treated in a a particularly aggressive way that a young white person might not. has very serious effects on on how people see the government, how they relate to the government, how they see the political process, where they see it as something that's out there to try to help them. So, obviously... My my, my one question I often ask is when I hear, I've heard the president and others say, I'm tired of all this political correctness. Why can't we just say what we want to say? And my question is, what is it you really want to say? Why don't you just tell us what you really want to say? Let's get this out there. Uh, But that's really what we're dealing with, with a lot of, uh, politically, I think, with the issues that we're talking here today.
2: Well, you know, one of the things I'd like to do is even explore this. we might not have the time to do it here, but even explore the term political correctness, what does that mean usually uh, and often? And uh, the other point that uh, you just made, and I'm, I want to address this to our panel uh, in a few minutes, is uh, that about the role of, uh, of the president. Uh, it's the elephant in the room, it's, uh, it, but it's one that I think we have to, uh, we have to explore. Before we do that, uh, I want to turn to another clip. Uh, this one by teaching tolerance. Of, this is a, a clip of the a part of a film they put together called Mix It Up at Lunch.
3: Mix it up day was a very fun day. I got to see more people mingling and getting along with people that they usually don't necessarily talk to or even look at. And it was a very fun thing to see that people were being proactive and getting in with other kids.
1: I love the whole, the whole, day. Even though it seemed chaotic, I loved everything they did because it's our kids speaking to our kids which is what we need. We need interaction between our students so that they understand even the and, and hopefully even though they took it as acting or just singing, they'll go home tonight or this afternoon or or even think about it tomorrow. You know what they said really will make a difference if I just stand up Or if I learn that I'm different from somebody else, and it's okay. And that's my, my message that I hope they perceive from today, whether it be today, tomorrow. But I think the whole thing was a shining moment for me just to have them involved and work with each other.
2: My
0: advice to give to other students is to keep their eyes open. Don't shut
1: off and jump to conclusions. To just participate because I promise, very rewarding in
2: the end. Well, that's a good idea. And now, <laughs> now, we're going to mix it up. Uh, and uh, right before my second favorite meal, lunch. Uh, and uh, let's, uh, Maureen, let's start off with you. Um, okay. And this, uh, obviously, uh, is part of an effort to counter the hate, the uh, and the and the type of intolerance we're seeing out there. Uh, can you talk about uh, other uh, aspects of teaching tolerances um, uh, programs and how you're reaching or attempting to reach young people, uh, much like uh, the local program facing history in our in mm-hmm. ourselves?
1: Uh, we work through teachers across the United States, um, and millions of them turn to Teaching Tolerance for advice and guidance and curriculum. And while we do sponsor Mix It Up at lunch day, we're very cognizant of the fact that this can't just be a moment in the school year. That in fact, schools are incredibly important places. Uh, They're crucibles for building the society that we're all going to live in in 10 years or 20 years. And they are also one of the last common institutions standing. And so I think that it's a time that calls for more investment in making sure that schools are doing their jobs to counter hate and to build that good society. What does that mean? Uh, All of our work is guided by something we call the social justice standards. And they're based on four pillars, identity, diversity, justice, and action. The idea of identity in our vision is that schools should have this at the center of their vision so that as they look at students who come in, they want every student to find in school a place where their own identities, whatever those identities are, be they religious, racial, um, sexual orientation, whatever, can be affirmed and, and basically that they can have positive identity development. Secondly, that they develop a curiosity um, and obviously have exposure to people with different identities, but that it's a healthy, open-minded curiosity of, I know who I am. Tell me who you are. The third is we want children to have a commitment to justice. And that shouldn't be very controversial. I mean, it is part of the Pledge of Allegiance that we want justice for all. And we want children to be able to think critically and recognize injustice when they see it. And finally, we feel that the end of all education has to be a a capacity to take action, to work with others to address injustices, and to do the work that we're all called upon to do, which is to make this world a better place than we found it. And so for us, it's, it's about encouraging peer relationships. It's about encouraging schools to have daily interactions uh, between uh, among students and adults that bring them together. It's curriculum-based, explicit curriculum about prejudice and about stereotypes, but also that builds community. Um, implicit com- uh, curriculum that exposes students to the lived experiences of others. Um, this is incredibly important, and there's lots of uh, good research that has shown that when students learn about the history of discrimination, they, in fact, their attitudes, their discriminatory attitudes, decline and decrease. So we should be honest in our curriculum about, about the warp and the, uh, the flaws in our history. And finally, I think the most important thing, and school leadership is incredibly important here. Not every school in this country is a cauldron of hatred. We, heard, we hear from a lot of teachers who talk about how this doesn't happen at my school, and they always point to school leadership who really walk the walk as well as talking the talk. Kids learn from adults, and they learn from each other. And so, what's ma- what matters is not only what we say, but also what we do, and that means that we have to greet every person who comes into that school and treat them as a deserving human being who deserves our respect.
2: You know, it's funny that I'm, when I'm thinking about the whole notion of trying to engender empathy, which is part, of, mm-hmm. which is what your program yes. does, which is what the World of Difference program does, mm-hmm. you're also dealing, however, with a larger message that's coming across. For example, at, oftentimes on Twitter. Uh, a huge megaphone uh, that certain individuals have in order to promulgate a particular message. And, and one question I would have for Oren in, uh, and in the context of that is, how do, you basically, how do you basically get to a point where you think you're reaching, where you actually are making a world of difference, when you have that bigger uh, uh, megaphone out there that might be drowning out your message?
3: Yeah. I mean, th- this is a battle for hearts and minds at the end of the day. So, in the Center on Extremism, we believe sunlight is the best disinfectant. You need to expose the extremists, you need to expose the hate, so that people can, frankly, understand what they're up against. But our work would not be enough without our educational resources. So, World of Difference, for example, it trains uh, not only students, but teachers and their parents not only how to identify bias, we're good at, we're pretty good, right, at identifying what is racism, anti Semitism, what is Islamophobia, et cetera. But you know what's more important and this is a lesson from the holocaust is to have people to say i'm not just going to sit around and do nothing about it you're training kids and often this is peer-to-peer model as well that we have at adl and that gives it a a little bit sort of more legitimacy for younger people but to say you have a stake here you have a role we will teach you how to identify bias within institutions within others and within yourself and then we are going to arm you and help you to speak out and challenge that bias and that racism. That makes my job as somebody who's tracking extremism easier because I know there's an army behind me who are going to be able to call it out and do something about it, right? Deborah Lipstadt said, anti-Semitism starts with the Jews, but it doesn't end with the Jews. The same is true for all forms of hate. And look no further than Pittsburgh, where here's an individual who attacked 11 people, the you know, largest massacre against Jews in this, in this country's history, And he was motivated by an anti-immigrant sentiment, talking about the caravan, talking about sort of the social media hate of that day. And he targeted Jews because in his conspiratorial white supremacist worldview, the Jews are controlling our immigration policy. So by teaching kids of all different backgrounds, religious, races, et cetera, that helps to the fight against anti-Semitism. And the fight against anti-Semitism helps fight all forms of racism and bigotry. That's what we're trying to teach our kids in our schools.
2: Orrin, uh, and uh, just a good segue to David, you, you know how to talk about this stuff. You know how to talk about this stuff. All of you, you, you you're conversationalists. David, a lot of your, uh, uh, a lot of your research is, is based on conversations that take place between individuals and the amelioration of discrimination as a result of those discussions. Um, Talk about that work, and and what conclusions are you coming to in this age of heightened anxiety and hate, if you will?
0: I think we need, as a society, to find safe places where people can talk when if someone because of their background and understanding said something that was inappropriate they're not castigated and excluded um so i think creating those safe places generically is, is one thing that all of us need 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 to be because there's a sense in which um you know kellogg foundation had a program called the truth Ra- racial healing and transformation people need don't assume that everyone has the same level of knowledge that you have, and there's a term in their socialization that was used that didn't think it was a problem and now they're now learning it's a problem so so I think we, we need to be patient with each other but be committed to 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 firmly but lovingly raise issues and 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 provide truth. There is a, a study I want to talk about. It was, was published recently, a very elegant study published in Science, where a group of researchers took political canvases and sent them out to Democratic and Republican voters um, and had these canvassers allow the, the voter they were talking to to do most of the talking. And their job was to find ways to link an experience in the life of the canvasser to think of some experience they had had when they had been treated negatively, and then to link that to how transgender individuals would feel when they are treated negatively. And this showed that this kind of conversation was effective in reducing prejudice against transgender individuals. It was effective in increasing levels of support for policies to ensure um, anti-discrimination legislation um, towards transgender individuals. And what they would say is the key is the specific language and conversation that was used to engender this. And this organization out in Southern California who, who does this work, they tested 13,000 conversations first to find the right kind of conversation that nonetheless can open the door to help to build empathy. And, and I think the building of empathy, of putting ourselves in, in the shoes of another, is one of the keys to, to building the kind of tolerance that we need in our society.
2: One of the cauldrons of, uh, of that we're seeing where empathy is basically being challenge, <laughs> where, it's, it, where it's contravened, it seems to be taking place online. I think about Reddit, for example, which has uh, become a, a platform for, uh, for abuse and for a lot of haters. Uh, and Dipayan, how are you basically finding um, uh, Reddit and other social media platforms? Uh, are the conversations that uh, David talked about and the Efforts toward empathy, or can they possibly take place on, on on online platforms that seem to have been basically
4: subsumed by, by the haters? Wow, it's it's very difficult. I think uh, I think it's very difficult uh, to cite another study, a different study. Um, uh, MIT researchers showed about uh, just a few months ago in an, in a paper, I believe in Science or Nature, uh, that. Falsehoods travel twenty times faster than the truth, and they travel faster, they travel farther, and they reach deeper into social networks, <laughs> meaning to individual people using Twitter, which was the social network that these researchers um, uh, analyzed. Um, and uh, I think I think what that suggests is that well, falsehood and hate and disinformation are all linked together, and uh, in the practice of spreading hate online on social networks, or the practice of spreading disinformation, uh, we've we've seen over and over and over again that propagators of this kind of content are really linking the two and, and, and trying to hit those thin cracks in American society uh, and pound them over and over and over again and fracture society uh, by by targeting ads or or targeting content or pulling people into filter bubbles um, and, and showering them with content about uh, a, a particular political issue that triggers hatred or triggers uh, discriminatory action going forward. Um, and I think to, to really resolve that kind of issue, we have to revisit the business model. We have to think again about how do Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, how do they work? it 's about these services it's about the collection of data to drive behavioral profiling and it 's about uh, these algorithms that target ads and curate content and To really address hate speech in the long run we 're seeing two issues we're seeing the, the this this problem of filter bubbles, which is I believe is caused by this business model of people trying to Force people, uh, dis- uh, pr- uh, hate speech propagators and dis- disinformation operators, trying to force people into these filter bubbles, and uh, increase engagement over these over these platforms uh, as the internet platforms themselves want to increase their their ad revenues, um, and we're seeing this problem of of pu- uh, pushing content against those thin cracks to try to break people, or or break their will to be tolerant. Um, I think, the, I think the only place to start then is to, is to address that infrastructure. Um, and uh, that's going to require a lot of political will. And right now, if we, if we talked earlier about politics, uh, these issues, even, isn't, even as they pertain to social media, are divided along partisan lines. Um, when I worked in the White House uh, during the Obama administration, we saw this, and, and it was very difficult to do anything about it. Uh, when I worked at Facebook in Washington, uh, we saw this again. And uh, I think it's, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to address it. But we need political will. We need to build sentiment and um, uh, build up the public education on these, on these kinds of issues, and start to address them uh, looking deep down at the way that the internet is, is structured today.
2: Well, let's take it from uh, online to the to the streets of uh, the role, for example, of law enforcement uh, in in much of uh, what many people see as an antithetical relationship with uh, uh, communities of color, uh, with uh, uh, many communities uh, in in the country, and, the, and many seem to be emboldened by the uh, current uh, administration, the Justice Department, and by the by the White House. Uh, Jim, can you talk about? Um, uh, and then I'm going to ask the panel uh, pretty much the same the panel here, pretty much the same question. Can you talk about the uh, role that police officers are playing uh, in terms of, uh, the, if you will, the receptivity uh, to a lot of these negative uh, uh, negative messages that are being, uh, if you will, uh, being uh, seen as uh, as messages of uh, of of hate? Many more people
5: are going to have contact with a police officer than they are with the president of the United States, and many, or a governor, or an attorney general, and many are going to draw their uh, uh, their conclusions about how the government reacts to them uh, over their lifetimes based on that contact. We have been at this for a long time of the training, and that's why I really encourage all of the people who have spoken here about the training they do to, 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 to modernize police training on this issue. After Rodney King, we set out on a large-scale training in Wisconsin, as many states did, on police understanding uh, racial divisions. Much of the training, when I look back at it and have seen the results, was just plain wrong. I mean, a lot of it was police officers Um, uh, you know, going up to people, to uh, African-American people and calling him man because they thought that was how they were going to relate more closely and be part of the community. Much of the training in community policing was to teach white police officers how to talk kind of jive, street jive, thinking that somehow that was making them culturally, um, you know, uh, uh, aware and, and with the people that they were talking about. You saw it at Harvard with the Professor Gates incident where, you know, a distinguished professor uh, is treated in that way. We probably all know, and I know dear relatives and friends who have been treated. I've often asked, I think the training for police officers ought to start by having rich African American people come in so they know this isn't about poverty and tell them about their worst experience with the police. And people, white people are shocked to hear these stories. I've done this a few times to hear to hear their friends talk about what happened to them when they went in the hardware store and got followed around and then stopped because maybe they were shoplifters. So it gets back to this empathy issue. And much of the training was good. And obviously, the major part of law enforcement after training has to be, this is the law, and you have to force the law, and it doesn't it doesn't matter who the person is in front of you or their color. But when you get into these deeper assumptions that people have, and many police officers are not immune to them, that for some genetic reason, black people have more criminal disposition than white people, that's at the heart of much of what we're talking about here, and that gets reinforced politically. So I really encourage the kind of training we've talked about and we've heard about in the schools and others, particularly about empathy, to really have that be the training that moves into the law enforcement realm as well. I wanna make one other point if I can about politics quickly. We've come unfortunately in this country now to two parties that are, one is almost an all white party and one is a party that is made up of most racial minority, uh, some white males and about half of the white females in the country. If you just look at this demographically, that's not a good place for us to be politically. Because the white party has to maximize its white vote in every election. And the way you do that is to get white people, the majority people, voting as a block. And we saw this in the South after the Civil Rights Act. Nobody thought in the South that Republicans someday could get, you know, 75% of the white vote. They said that'll never happen. Well, it's happened. And now you are seeing that same thing happening politically, and the re- the result is on this on the messaging issue that we've talked about. It is there are political incentives now that are exploited, as was just described on the internet. What what do we know about what the Russians did? Some of that's come out as they exploited racial divisions by putting all kinds of stuff out on the internet uh, that both after police shootings that inflamed both sides. That's how they know they can get to us. And our politics is now driving us into that same position where one side benefits from inflaming it, and the other side benefits by trying to make sure that all of the people of minority background in the country are voting for their party. And that's we now are in a very, very difficult political place. We've been here for a long time, but it has now gotten that if you just look at the numbers and the vote and how it breaks down by race, it is it is just stark. We have parties that are divided on this issue.
2: I could tell you, we, we could talk about this, uh, folks, uh, for days because it's so much to talk about. Uh, we have time uh, at this point for just a few questions from our, our, uh, from our listeners and our viewers. Uh, this question is from uh, uh, Michael. And he says, clearly, there are a host of levels that impact racism, institutional, cultural, et cetera. What is our best chance of changing racism on an individual level? I'm, I'm going to direct this one right now to David, and, uh, and then to the rest of our panel. DAVID
0: um, it, It's a big challenge. Um, I, I think uh, I would say we need to raise awareness levels. So what's happening with teaching tolerance so that people are knowledgeable. And I would say that the media has a powerful role to play. We have seen, now I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that we've solved the problem, but we have seen striking declines in the levels of prejudice against LGBT populations in the United States. That has not happened by chance. Much of that has been linked in scientific research to explicit strategies that were implemented in the media that has led to reductions of prejudice, and I think we we. We need to change the culture. We need to, to change what people think. And, and the media and, and other larger cultural institutions, like religious institutions, can also play an important role in changing the
3: very culture
0: around these issues.
3: or Yeah, I mean, this is a $64,000 question. Or the million dollar question. <laughs> oh, um, I mean, I, I I do think this, you know, in in tracking extremism of all types and and narratives, especially online, I am always um, disappointed by the lack of content that tells the other side of the story, right? So if you go onto YouTube and you put 9-11, you want to learn about what happened and younger people are not quite sure what happened because they weren't alive. It's only a couple of suggestions, right, away from conspiracy theories, and these are our more mainstream platforms that are being exploited by those who are giving these false narratives, these hateful narratives. So I do think creating an opportunity for people to create content, not just that counters it—that that, that's difficult—but to have a place to develop your own narratives is part of that um, effort of of creating critical thinking. You know, not only think about what you're, what you're seeing and what you're bringing in and, and think about who's trying to sort of fool you and try to trick you and brainwash you into having these hateful beliefs, but you need to have an opportunity to then leverage other types of content. You know, I learn about new technologies from two places, from extremists and from my seven year old son, <laughs> right? And so we need to be able to arm our youth with the ability to tell their stories in compelling ways that are as sexy and cool and interesting as those who have those hateful ideas.
2: Uh, one of the questions I do want to ask uh, and and the little time that we have is uh, uh, Marina Dupayat, are you seeing um, what is the impact of what we're seeing outside of the United States? What impact is that having on, if you will, thoughts uh, about uh, tolerance intolerance here in the United States? Uh, out of Hungary, for example, where you see Roma under mm-hmm. assault, where you see uh, immigration has become an issue uh, that has been defined as us versus them, like here in the United States. What's what's your view about that, the impact?
1: I don't think that we're seeing it explicitly on school children, for instance, or even on educators. But I think that a lot of the language and the Mm -hmm. ideas that are coming out of Europe are being uh, amplified in social media here in the United States, and nobody is paying attention to where they're coming from. Basically, um, so I, I think that the notion that just because they're across the ocean, they don't affect us is just untrue. Uh, just
4: just to add add to that, um, I, I completely agree with Maureen, and we're we're definitely seeing some some really nasty themes come, particularly from all over Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Northern Europe. Um, uh that are as as orna and I have have researched a little bit and and spoken about um, driven from this idea of identitarianism and uh, that is uh, that is definitely shaping a lot of uh, kind of cultural creation of this uh, or or this ethos that um, we are we are better and uh, they're they're worse and I think that People like Richard Spencer and, and, and people like that in, in the United States have, have certainly subsumed that message and, and, and projected it here. Um, and that's obviously uh, obviously dangerous.
2: I'm looking at our clock, and so but I also need uh, all of you to just take uh, a moment to, uh, if you will, summarize uh, this, uh, this discussion and your thoughts on um, hatred and intolerance that's uh, sweeping Across our nation, unfortunately. Or:
3: Sure. I mean, to a degree, this is a sort of final word for me. I, I would say, um, you know, we have a heat map at ADL where we track incidents of anti Semitism, uh, hate crimes, uh, extremist activity of all types. And I'm always reminded, as we're trying to explain to the public the trends that we're seeing, that each one of those points on a map, over 5,000 now over the last two years, Um, is a story of community resilience, right? Is a story of people coming together and rejecting that hate. And to your point about the media, I think we need to start telling more inspiring stories. And because when we hear that, that also has an impact. And that also maybe creates courage amongst people to hold all those who are purveyors of hate accountable, whether they're in your local community or whether they're in the highest office, right? We all have a voice and we need to constantly support all those in our communities to show that hate really does have no place here. Um, so you don't do this work for 20 years without having some sort of hope that things will get better, but I think the data and I think the, uh, the training, whether it's for law enforcement, students, et cetera, will help make those dots a little bit more uh, actionable and you're turning basically lemons into lemonade. <laughs> Two quick things. Governor Doyle talked
0: about uh, interactions of African-Americans with the police. Um, I and other colleagues published a paper last year in Lancet that shows that uh, when police killed an unarmed African-American male, the mental health of the entire African-American population in that state is adversely affected for the next three months. So again, it's another example of this is affecting the quality of life of individuals here. And finally, my other quick point is that this environment of hate, it's not only about individual interaction. It is driving social policy. And and we are leaning towards policies. There are policy proposals right now in Washington DC that will destroy the social safety net as we know it today, and we don't have to guess about what would happen in 1981. The Omnibus Reconciliation Bill, early in the Reagan administration, let a million people lose food stamps, and 600,000 people were dropped from Medicare, uh, Medicaid, and uh, 250 community health centers closed in the United States as a result to cuts to social services, and there were pervasive negative effects on children, on pregnant women, on the elderly in the United States. So, so we have to look not only at our interactions, we have to look at the policies that we, we decide, driven by, by false narratives.
4: Uh, I'll, I'll also share just two quick thoughts. Um, first, addressing the, the online space. Uh, again, I think these internet platforms are designed uh, the way they are, because they're designed to, to increase engagement. And there's no regulatory regime that sits above them right now that, that tells them. No, you can't do that. You can't spread hate. You can't spread discrimination. One example, uh, Latanya Sweeney, a professor of computer science here at Harvard, um, searched for her name on Google. And I believe the story that she reported is that she saw an ad for, uh, for jails because Google inferred that her name is associated with African-American uh, heritage and, and thought that, hey, we should show her this ad. Um, in another example, Google, uh, when, you, when kids were searching for, for gorillas on Google Images, uh, people people saw uh, images of, of minorities in the United States. Um, these systems are designed to drive engagement because they want Professor Sweeney to click on that ad because they think that that's going to drive engagement. They want people to, uh, they design these algorithms in ways that encourages clicks and encourages bigger ad spend. So my first point is that we need to address that system. We need our leadership to understand how these systems work and start to address them uh, at their core. Second point uh, is just uh, a broader one, which is that I think our leaders uh, in society, from from politicians to actors and actresses, um, thought leaders, uh, need, to, need to be more honest and, and need to speak up. Um, I think uh, just one, one example, we, this didn't come up yet, but uh, with Liam Neeson we've seen over the past few days. Um, <coughs> I want to highlight not just what he said, which you know, was, was honest to the public, which I appreciate at some level, but also what a, a soccer player, John Barnes of African, uh, af- of African origin but who played in England, how his reaction to Liam Neeson, and his reaction one, was one of great appreciation for the honesty, instead of just kind of the, the <coughs> traditional media uh, reaction, which was that, wow, Liam Neeson is a horrible person, and we need to, we need to vilify him. So um, I, would, I would appreciate more honesty. Uh, uh, we've seen that in, in the US Congress as well over the past week. Um, so just two quick points. Thank you. SPEAKER
1: Okay. Uh, I think we're going to lose, win or lose this battle in the schools, basically. Uh, if we do not orient our schools towards the vision that they are, in fact, building the society that we're going to live in in the future, we have lost. Um, we've been f- focusing a lot in schools on college and career readiness. And we really have to focus on kind of social and emotional readiness as well. I mean, my ideal. The ideal policy change is to really make integration a focus of our school policy. Uh, but if not if we can't go there, then we really need to make sure that young people have digital intelligence so that they know not only how to interpret material that comes to them as consumers, but that they also learn how to be productive consumers, uh, producers for social media. Um, I think, At the end of the day, I'm I'm reminded of the phrase that uh, Dr. King used in his last book, which is that we have a choice between chaos and community. And what we've been talking about so much is isolation. Hate grows in isolation. And schools are places of community. And so everything that we need to do is deliberate talking, uh, teaching about the kind of discrimination that exists, uh, not pretending it doesn't exist, um, admitting that we live in a, we've all been socialized to be racist. And I think it's particularly an issue in schools because 80% of the school uh, of teachers are white women. And I'm very fond of white women, but uh, <laughs> but they they carry with them, we all carry with us implicit biases. It's one of the issues that uh, a lot of good police training has tried to address, and it's something we have to address with teachers as well. Uh, but we really, really need to decide that this next generation has to be better than than we are generally.
2: And Jim uh, in uh, Wisconsin, please, uh, your last words. Well, not your last words. <laughs> <laughs> your, your words today. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Well, I, I agree with everything that's just been said. I had a friend, a European, say to me recently, whatever happened to your country, and he went off about how bad everything was, I said, well, remember, this is a country that just, uh, a few years ago, you were cheering because of the election of Barack Obama as president. And it's not like everybody just suddenly moved out of this country and a whole new group, new, new people moved in. But what happened is we are a, a complicated country, and." while we've talked about the problems here there we are a country of of great tolerance and of acceptance and in our schools and churches and much of it, the work that's being done here police officers all across the country are doing really really important things on this so i'm going to end this if i could just politically which is in wisconsin and we weren't unique in this last election we in the in november we had more people vote in an off-year election that at any time since the Second World War, and a massive turnout at presidential levels, and it was a very, very close vote, and I will say the person I wanted to win won, but that's beside the point. The point is, we do have a very, very engaged political world right now, and all of the education we've talked about, the issues of implicit bias, of tolerance, the more we talk about that in all the ways we've talked about here today, Really affect how current voters and younger people who are going to be coming voters will vote, and that's how in a democracy. Uh, with back to, to um, Professor Williams' comments about the policies that make the difference. That's how we, we, how that's how we try to make sure the policies we want are effectuated. And so it is really critical that we have a very, very engaged. A uh, uh, political body, and I'll give uh, President uh, Trump credit for this. He has truly engaged the American people, and we are seeing turnout, voting turnout, like we have never seen before, and that's a good thing. And that politically is the way you address these issues.
2: Jim, thank you. And on that note, <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I want to thank our panel: Jim, uh, Marine, uh, pion you know, David and Oren. And I'd like to thank you, our audience, for uh, taking part in this, uh, this forum. Let me mention also the, that's something that's coming up on uh, March 4th, another uh, event. And I'm going to read this. This is the uh, Dr. Lawrence uh, and Roberta Cohn Forum's uh, deaths from pregnancy and childbirth. Why are more US mothers dying and what can be done? This is also presented jointly by PRI's, the world, uh, and, and WGBH. I'd like to thank you, and I'd uh, like to thank our panel, engaging discussion. Uh, we have a, there's a lot of work to be done, uh, obviously, and uh, you but you've you've begun that work, and you are uh, carrying out that work every day. Thank you very much. And I thank you.
1: This has been a production of the forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at WWw. .forum.hsph.org thank you for sharing the forum